Church. Thanks for listening in. We exist as a church to connect people to the heart of God and to a family within the church. And we believe that Jesus is the way. We hope this message blesses you and gives you hope today. Good morning. How is everyone? Y'all doing well? Well, uh, we are continuing. Hello. We're continuing our uh, series on Acts. I've been having some, some voice issues, so bear with me as we go through it. We're actually recording this for second service, so come on, put a hand together for second service. And so I'm gonna kinda stay put. Come on, y'all can do better than that. Come on, let's put a hand together for second service. That's good. I'm gonna be kinda staying put, so if you're behind a pillar, I'm sorry. Uh, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts. This week we are in Acts chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, the message of the book of Acts, to recap, is that God has filled his people with his spirit and has sent us out as ambassadors, everybody say ambassadors, to every corner of the earth to spread his message of his kingdom for the redemption and the renewal of a world that God so desperately loves. Uh, today we are in a story that if I can be honest, if I were writing the book of Acts, I would have cut this story. I would not have put this story in the Bible. Uh, th this shows us that, that Luke is giving us an extremely accurate picture of the, of the early church. He's showing not just righteousness, but he's also showing hypocrisy. And so uh, I, I would have left this out. Um, but to, to kind of build into this, th this morning we're, we're going to talk about the devil. <laughs> Everybody say the devil. It's not something that I've talked about a lot. Um, but something I've found in our culture is, is that when we talk about the devil, it's always like the devil be so busy, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like someone leaves a grocery cart in the parking lot, doesn't put it away. I'm watching you, whoever you are. And it hits your car, you're like, the devil be busy, right? Or it's a Saturday and the Wi-Fi is not working right, you can't watch football, the devil be busy. Or you're in your car and your cell phone slips in between the seat and the console and your toddler's in the back seat yelling at you, the devil be busy. So the big question we're going to ask this morning and build up to is how does the devil actually attack the church and individuals? We're going to look at some of the tactics this morning. My thesis for this morning is that the enemy's goal is to influence us to believe in lies that when acted and lived out, bring about death in us and death in the community around us. And something I want to say before we start really clearly is I, this will not be a total covering of this subject. We're, we're going through the book and we're going to be faithful in it. Um, and I'm not an expert in this, but I'm going to try to give you what I've been learning. So I've got some recommended resources for you. I've got two books I want to recommend if, if today uh, you want to learn more about it. There's one book that I might as well read out of this morning because I'm stealing so much out of it. It's a book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. Uh, it's a book that I read last year. It's really good. Then there's another book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I probably read this every four to five years. It's an incredible book. I should probably read it annually. And so those, that's the recommended reading if you want to write that down. Um, my sermon title for this morning, if you're taking notes, is The Lie. Okay, it's The Lie. Um, so do, do this with me. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And as you do, if we could stand to our feet for the reading of God's word. 
I said this last week, we're gonna continually do this, uh, but this is the most powerful and profound moment in our services. This is the moment where we get to read God's word. And so Jubilee's gonna come up here in a moment and she's gonna read this. We're gonna be in Acts uh, chapter 4:32 into chapter five, verses one through 11. And let me say this before she starts. When we read the Bible, it was not written with chapters and verses and breakdowns and all that kind of stuff. It was written as a letter. And so we're going to read a section here, okay? Let's do this. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles for those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the son of the apostle named Barnabas, nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. But there was a certain man named Ananias who brought his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He, he bought, oh, sorry. He brought some of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up and wrapped him in a sheet and took him out to be buried. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear great gripped the entire church as everyone else who heard what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it's powerful and it's effective. And God, it's useful for teaching us and guiding us. And God, we pray that this morning you would do just that. God, that you would teach us, that you'd guide us into all truth. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Hey, you can have a seat. Um, who in here remembers Napster? Who remembers Napster? Uh, you had like an enormous PC that was like, you know, this big. And I remember when Napster first came out, people would buy computers that you could burn CDs on, right? And so it had two disk drives where you'd have the CD that you were going to burn and then the CD that you were trying to copy. And people would, would load it into this site called Napster. And what it was is it was a free way to essentially steal music, Right. And so all of us, who, come on, who had like the, the, the CD thing up, uh, you know, what's that thing called? Yeah, no, not the burner, like in the car, yeah, at the visor, like you had the CD holder, it was full of burnt CDs and things like that. Uh, and, and there were many names, there was Napster and then there was Kazaa, who remembers that? And then I think there was Morpheus, or was that just in, 
uh, what's that movie with Keanu Reeves? Matrix, yeah. But I think there was Morpheus, and then there was LimeWire. Um, and I remember when, when I first got an iPad, I had a friend who was like a full-on pirate, okay? Like this guy, I mean, he, he, he didn't just steal songs. It was an iPod. Uh, he didn't steal songs. He stole like software. You, you could pirate like $1,000 software. He would take that. He would take movies, all different kinds of things. And this dude hooked me up. I got a 30, 30 gigabyte iPod, and I think he put like 30,000 songs on there, something ridiculous. And I was like... This is it, like this is life. I was a musician at the time and I loved it. And honestly, I never even considered that it was wrong, right? I, I, never, I didn't even think about it. Like I just started doing this stuff, it's like free music, that sounds great. There was, there was no more thought than that, but think about all of us had this collective experience. And then in about 2009, I, I was talking to a guy named Nathaniel Watts and we were in the kitchen and he said, you know, that's stealing. I was like, yeah, I guess it is. And he was like, I don't listen to pirated music. And I was like, really? And he was like, no. And I was like, man, I'm going to really think about this. And honestly, I got convicted and I adopted it. And then I did what we all do when we get convictions we adopt. I got a little bit judgmental, if I'm honest, right? And I came to church the next week and I realized like all the pre-service music we were listening to was like pirated music. And I'd had this revelation that it was stealing. I'm like, God is not going to bless what we do, right? So I like rebuke everybody. I'd been like one week into this, you know, I'm sure I was super gracious with it. But so something happened within our culture is that something that every culture throughout basically all of time has considered wrong, like stealing, was universally accepted and adopted. And in fact, if somebody came to us and said, oh, I don't listen to pirated music, we would judge them, right? Like we would get irritated with them as if they were the ones doing something wrong. Comer says it this way. He said, something that is universally seen as wrong, like stealing, became a part of our culture. How? He, he lays it out in his book, Live No Lies, this way. He says that the enemy comes in with a deceptive idea that plays to a disordered desire, which for us was free music, right? That then is normalized within a sinful society. Today, we're going to dig into this a little bit, and you're really going to get to dig into this in your small groups. Uh, okay, so let's turn. Let's look at our text. So this is maybe the biggest, like, what the heck passage in the entirety of the New Testament, right? Somebody makes a mistake and gets struck dead. Okay, we're going to talk all about this. But in order to understand the severity of this text, we have to understand the seriousness of the battle. Okay, this is a continuation of the same cosmic battle that's been happening from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis for the hearts and the lives of God's people, humanity. What we're seeing here is a new player who is actually a very old player, the enemy of the soul, what the Bible calls the accuser of the brethren, Satan. This is his first explicit mention in the book of Acts. He's mentioned twice in the book of Acts, twice in the book of Luke. Satan, or the devil, is an idea that we have almost written off as modern people, right? We get images of uh, a red man wearing tights, like handing out candy, or like dancing at a party, or cartoon characters on our shoulders, right? Or Dana Carvey is the church lady saying, could it be Satan? 
right? That's what we think of. But here's the truth. Christians, all the way back to the beginning, have have recognized the devil as one of the three enemies of the soul. Thomas Aquinas outlined it in the book we've all read, Summa Theologica, right? Written in 1274. (laughs) Just as man is tempted by the flesh, so too is he tempted by the world and the devil. This is not explicitly mentioned in Scripture, although if you go through and look, you're not going to see this list, but if you look through the entirety of Scripture, you're going to see these things at play, the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is what Christians have always recognized as the enemies of the human soul. The world, those are the forces that seek to form us and influence us. The flesh, these are the desires within us that are contrary to what God wants. And the devil, who plays on those desires. Now, Comer breaks down the work of the devil like this, and I think it is absolutely brilliant. The strategy of the enemy, since uh, the same, the strategy of the enemy has been the same since the Garden of Eden. He brings us deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires, and then the goal is that they become normalized within a sinful society. Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Listen to this. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. It's a deceptive idea, right? He puts a deceptive idea out there. And then look at this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So he, he gave her a deceptive idea, right, that played to a disordered desire that was in her. She saw that it was good. And then it's normalized within their small two-person society. She gave some of that to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Now, here's how it plays out for us, for Callie and I. Like, if we decide to go on a diet, right, and and all of a sudden we're driving through North Little Rock, we're going home, and we drive past Scoop Dog, (laughs) right? We look at each other, and without saying, we say, are you thinking what I'm thinking? The diet can start back tomorrow, right? (laughs) What we really desire, like deep within us, is to eat healthy and to be healthy and to not feel awful when we wake up in the morning, right? But what's happening in this moment is that an idea comes in that plays to a desire that we already have in our hearts for something unhealthy. So for me, my biggest temptation is chips. I'm just telling you. I I will eat an entire bag of whatever snack Callie buys for the kids, okay? She's going to start making stickers that are my face doing this, looking in the thing, you know, with an X through it, okay? Veggie straws will not last more than 48 hours around Bronson Duke, okay? Uh, I want to be in shape. I want to be healthy, right? Like, I want to lower my sodium intake because that's good, But most of the time, my desire for salts and carbs went out, right? Here's the truth. Disordered hearts lead to disordered and and destructive lives. Now, this is a small thing. But here's something I've learned with my voice, right? 
Last weekend, I knew I was having voice issues. I was supposed to preach a college service, and I knew if I preached that service, I was not going to speak for the rest of the week. So I was on vocal rest from Monday morning all the way till now. This is the most I've talked since last weekend. I'm having a blast, okay? I've been going crazy. What, what I found is that if I don't take care of my health, my family pays the price, so this week, I couldn't help Callie as much with the kids. Why? Because I couldn't speak, right? You cannot lead a toddler without speaking, all right? It's nearly impossible. There were things I couldn't do, and I just started thinking about that, of like, man, if I don't take care of areas of unhealth in my life now, my family will pay the price in the long run. And this is the same thing that happens with these disordered desires. Like, if we don't vigilantly watch out for these things, in the long run, they're going to become bigger problems, now, the, the goal of the Holy Spirit is to rightly order our hearts, right? This is to bring our hearts into alignment with what God planned for us because rightly ordered hearts lead to rightly ordered lives. The goal of the Holy Spirit, as we've learned, is to bring us into alignment with God's plan. Now, the goal of the devil, coming back to this, is to distract us from God's plan and to play on our flesh, that's our desires, to, to destroy the people and societies that God loves. Okay, point number one. We must be vigilant about what we let influence us. Acts 5, let's jump into this, verse 1. But there's a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He bought part, he bought, he brought part of the money, me and Jubilee struggling with that same spot. <laughs> he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount, and with his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Now, Peter said, Ananias, now I want you to notice this language. Why have you let Satan, what does it say? Fill your heart. You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. Does that sound familiar? What are we supposed to let fill our hearts? But here, Peter is saying that they had been filled with Satan. Let's go deeper into the experience. Let's go around, let's feel around a little bit. Let's think about what they're going through. Now, Barnabas, we saw earlier uh, in chapter four, had sold land and he brought it to the apostles and everybody saw it. You know, this is such a big deal. Like it's in the Bible, right? Like they even talked about where he was from, all that stuff. Like everyone celebrated this great act of generosity. Now, I don't think they thought, yes, Satan, come in with your presence, Satan. <laughs> Like, I don't think that's what happened. I don't think they were like, come and, come and fill me with your presence. Come on, just come on in. We invite you. I think they thought, I see the attention that Barnabas got, and I want that. Then, when they said they sold the land, I bet they thought they won't know the difference if we don't give the full amount. No one will be hurt. Now, here's the truth. Here's the issue here. Deception breaks the spirit of the deceiver. Why? Because when we deceive and we enter into things like this, it causes separation from us and God. It breaks the spirit of the deceiver and the integrity of the community. Your falsehood destroys fellowship. Falsehood destroys fellowship. John Stott paints the picture this way of what's happening behind the scenes. He has a great commentary called The Message of Acts, if you want to dig deeper into this. He says this. He says, the first and crudest tactic was physical violence. This is what the devil did first. He tried to crush the church by persecution. 
His second and more cunning assault was moral corruption or compromise. Having failed to destroy the church from the outside, he attempted through Ananias and Sapphira to insinuate evil into its interior life and ruin the Christian fellowship. The goal of the spirit is truth and faithfulness. The goal of the devil is deceit and destruction. The filling of God's Holy Spirit will build the community of God's people. The filling of the devil will destroy it. Now, Satan is trying to undermine the community of God's people. The question we have to ask is how, right? Because if we can understand how he did it then, we can battle it today. Stock goes on. Something else I've learned about him is that he's singularly lacking in imagination. Over the years, he's changed neither his strategy nor his tactic nor his weapons. He's in the same old rut. So a study of his campaign against the early church should alert us to to his probable strategy today. If we are taken by surprise, we shall have no excuse. So how does he deceive the church? Through ideas. Your ideas are some of the most power, it's maybe the most powerful thing that that happens uh, throughout our world. Ideas form us. Everything we do starts with an idea. This is why the word says that we should take every thought captive. This is why we have to critically think about the ideologies of our world. This is why we have to critically study the scriptures. All sin starts with an idea. It starts with an idea, and it becomes sin when we are unwilling to take that idea captive or... More difficultly, we are unable to take it captive on our own. If you study the brain, what happens, um, it's called neuroplasticity. And so basically, like, it's the thing that enables, like, a guitarist to play a guitar chord or enables me to remember my wife's name, right? So what it is, is it's essentially like this. Neuroplasticity and, and, and memory works like this. So like when I'm trying to learn something, it's like somebody going through a forest with a machete, right? And like the first time they go through, it's not as easy, but the more times they go down that path, the easier it is for them to get down that pathway, which is why we end up with habitual sins that we majorly struggle with. And we end up like what the Apostle Paul said, doing the thing we don't want to do, Right. This is why we need Christian community, and this is why we need the help of the Holy Spirit to get us out. There are patterns that become so deeply ingrained in us, we need help, okay? So notice this in the garden. Eve never went back to consult with God. Did you notice that? Think about it. The devil said, did God really say? And she stood there and she reasoned with him by herself. She never says, hey, serpent, You're presenting a compelling case here. I'm going to go consult with God, who I walk with in the cool of the day, every day, and see what he has to say about it. She makes a decision in isolation, right? Isolation is where the worst things that happen to us happen, right? It's impossible to sin while we're present to God, right? It's impossible to actively sin while we're present to God. She didn't say, let me clarify. She said, I want that. And she turned her face from him. Here's a truism. You become who you spend the most time with, right? Have you all heard that? You're the sum total of your five closest friends. Another one I want to submit to you is we're most formed by what we give the most of our attention to. Let me say that correctly. We're most formed by what we give the majority of our attention to, right? And what is it for us? Everybody hold it up. What gets our attention? Come on. 
our cell phones, right? Our cell phones are, are the dominators of our lives. I want to give you something you can go into. If you have an iPhone, you can go into your settings, you can go into your screen time, and you can look at how much time you spend in each app. I want to encourage you to do that. You know, something that I've had to do, because I've realized because of the neuronic pathways that I've carved in my brain, I am incapable of turning Instagram off, right? Here's what I do. I'll be working, y'all, you've seen my ADD. We've all seen this, right? So I'll be working on something. The next thing I know, I'm like scrolling Instagram. Like, how did I get here? So what I did is I set a limit on the apps that I'm most tempted to spend time in. And when I get done with my hour, I'm done. And then at the end, it says to me, it's hilarious. My toddler, every night, when you tell your toddler to go to bed, what, what do they say? One more minute. I don't know if anybody else's does. My phone says one more minute when I run out of time on the apps or whatever. And I'm, I, I've made myself a toddler in my own life. But it's helping me. You know, we, we are formed by what we give most of our attention to. And, and the reality is, is that what's happening within social media apps, within Google or whatever, it, it plays to your desires, Okay? If you understand how search engine optimization works or Instagram al algorithms work, their goal is to keep you on the internet, right? Because your attention is the product, right? Because everybody's selling ads, right? And so the more ads you watch, the more money they make, which is why when you play games on your phones now, there's unlimited amounts of ads. Why? Because they get money every time. And so what we have to understand is that these things no longer serve to serve us and to help us. They serve, they serve to pull from us. It's a great tool, but it's a terrible place to live. We're in a constant battle with these things. We're in a constant battle with ideas. So here's a question. Where are you most formed? Are, are you more formed by social pressures, by social media campaigns, by political perspectives, or are you formed by the life and the teaching of Jesus? Are you formed by the scriptures through thoughtful biblical study, through reading? I know we're not all readers, but reading is good. Through engagement with the writings of the saints who came before us, y'all, you can never say that no mentors are available to you. There are thousands throughout history that we can go and we can learn from. There are also those beside us who live well that we can learn from. You know, th this right now is why with the men, we're committed deeply to prayer is because we have patterns in our life that we need to break. And for me, I'm totally convinced that the way that we do that is by communing with God, by spending time with God in prayer. You know, the average attention span for a human being is eight seconds. In the year 2000, it was 12 seconds, right? It's unbelievable. You know, we have to recapture and retake control of the minds that God gave us. Amen? So we have to be protective, uh, and we have to be careful of what influences. Number two, we have to recognize that the enemy's goal is to get us to believe the lie that what we want, that what we want is worth lying to get. Acts 5.4, the property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. You know, there was something, this is just an aside. We've got a guy in our church who comes, he travels a lot, so he's not here all the time, but he has a 1997 
Porsche 1911. It's incredible. It's beautiful. He bought it with like 30,000 miles on it. It's like the last of the air-cooled Porsches if you're into cars. Like in another life, I'd be into cars, okay? And so like I got the blessing of getting to drive this guy's car. And I was so nervous. He was like, hey, if you want to take your wife on a date, you can. I'm like, no, I'm good. This is enough for me, okay? I don't want to take this and do that. Y'all, never once when we were driving was I under the impression that it was my car. What I want us to notice is that the apostles have a real understanding that this church is God's church. Yo, we have to have that same kind of reverence for God's church. Okay, so notice this. They didn't have to sell the land. I think sometimes when we read in Acts, we can start feeling guilty. Has everybody ever felt guilty about just having possessions after reading the book of Acts? It's like, do I guess I need to bring it to the church and sell it all. We see here, Peter's saying, you don't have to do that. You know, the early church was engaged in radical generosity that went beyond what was required. They went beyond what God was asking them to do. We see in, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 26, Christ says, they says, hey, should we tithe? He says, yes, you should tithe, right? Most of the people that I encounter who don't believe in tithing, almost none of them are giving over 10%, right? A lot of times when we use that argument, the tithe is, is a good guide. It's a good start. But what we have to recognize, guys, within this text is that they didn't have to do it, okay? So let's get down into what did they want? Why did they lie? The enemy gets us to believe the lie that what we want is worth lying to get. Here's the truth. What we love in our heart has far greater influence on us than what we know in our head. What we love in our heart has far greater influence on us than what we know in our head. For them, they loved attention. They loved appearing generous. They loved social acclaim. They did not love generosity, right? They knew generosity was important, but they loved being praised by men. Stott says it this way, this way they wanted the credit and the prestige for, social, for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. In order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told an outright lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to boost their own ego. I, I wonder if anybody in here, and I think all of us have, have ever gotten in a place where we were tempted to lie about ourselves to get people to see us the way that we wish we were. Often, guys, it's not always this insidious, like, fill me, Satan, help me deceive people, right? <laughs> Often, it's misunderstanding the disordered desires that are in our heart and allowing those things to be played on that, that lead us into living out these falsehoods. So for me, uh, some of you guys know my story. I had a drug addiction. I had a pain pill problem. I, I relapsed two years in, and I didn't want to tell anybody. I was stealing pain pills out of people's cabinets, and <clears throat> I was still functioning, you know, which often you can early in addiction. And I, I was hiding this thing about myself. And then through a series of unfortunate events for me that actually ended up being fortunate, uh, I, I got caught. I was underage. I was at a Kidney Chesney concert. <laughs> Wearing a cowboy hat and a wife beater. Hello. Uh, and uh, what? Oh yeah, change the name of the shirt. That's yeah, bad name. Yeah, tank top. I was wearing a tank top. Uh, <clears throat> that's better. 
<laughs> and what we were doing is we were getting the girls we were with <laughs> to go to Overay's guys and get them to buy them beer, and they just ghost them and bring us the beers, right? And so this is what we're doing. I had a whole racket going. And, and uh, the, the guy who, uh, a guy I worked out with, who's a police officer, had gotten us like VIP parking, and one of the girls gets caught, right, underage drinking. And so he sees her, he knows we're together, and he says, is Bronson drinking? And she ratted me out. <laughs> She's like, yes, Bronson's been drinking. She's crying, she'll say whatever. So he calls me, and he says, uh, you don't have to tell your family. No, no, he, here's what he said. He said, I'm not going to tell your family, but if you don't tell your family, I'm, I'm going to, right? Uh, you need to go home and tell your family. So I went home, and, and I told him part of the truth, right? I went home, and I said, you know what, guys? I, I was drinking, and I had a couple beers. I haven't done anything like this in years. I'm so sorry. We were just having fun. But by God's grace... I got found out. And it was a series of events where basically one of my aunt's friends found like a glass bowl. And I'd forgotten about this. There was something called salvia. Anybody remember that? Drug addicts in the room? <laughs> and it was like a free like marijuana synthetic that you could get at like head shops. And somebody had let me try it. And I'd done it once. I left it in a backpack, forgot about it. Well, they found that. And they came to me. They didn't show it to me. They just said, Bronson, is there anything else going on? Is there anything else going on? I said, no, nothing. You know, everything's great. And they showed it to me. And y'all, in that moment, I had to fully come clean. And y'all, it, it was one of the most painful but liberating things that have happened in my life. That was God's grace on me. It, it was during that season that I, I recognized that I, I, addiction was not something I struggled with. It was something I identified as. So I didn't primarily identify myself as a son of God. I primarily identified myself as a drug addict, which is what kept me falling into that sin. So question, where are you tempted to not show your full self? You know, it's interesting. We all hate hypocrisy in the church, right? I, I hear it all the time. Like, my least favorite thing about the church is the hypocrisy in the church. Y'all, God is dealing with hypocrisy in the church here. It's difficult. Y'all, I can't find another example of this, thank the Lord, throughout church history. If you know of one, let me know. Um, but I think what God was doing was, was taking an incredibly strong stand and saying, within my community, within the church, it cannot be so or it will destroy it. Y'all, this is why confession is so important. Confession breaks the stronghold of lies and creates space for us to receive God's grace. Where there was a lie, God will fill it with joy that comes from walking in the light, that comes with walking in integrity. Point number three, God cares deeply about our sin. God cares deeply about our sin. Acts 5, verse 5. And soon Ananias heard these words, and he fell to the floor and died. You know, this is not a heart attack. We can't explain this away through natural causes. This was clearly God's judgment. It's actually called by theologians a judgment miracle. <laughs> I don't want to be on the receiving end of a judgment miracle, right? Like, when we pray for miracles, that's not the one that we want. Um, what happened? Like, the first time I read this, it's like, what happened to the hippie Jesus movement, Right? 
like where we're all, hey, Eric, he's coming up, make it spiritual, it's good. Um, <laughs> what happened to the hippie Jesus movement? Like I thought God was a God of love. How do we reconcile this? Here's what this story tells us that's so important. God cares deeply about the holiness of his people. That's the way he best loves us, by leading us into healthy and right living. Yo, we have all heard that the Bible says God is love. Has anybody heard that? This is one of the most common phrases that you'll hear today. You, You see it all over the internet. You see it all over places. Do you know how many times the Bible says that God is love? Two times. Do you know how many times the Bible says that God is holy? Over 400 times. Yo, God's holiness informs his love. It informs the way he leads and protects his people, the church. Yo, if we are not living in a way that's good for us, it would be unloving for God not to correct us. God's love is informed by his holiness. It is not loving to let someone keep doing something that's destructive for them without telling them. Holy living is healthy living. And I think something that's happened within our churches is that in an effort to be loving, we've stopped being truthful. And through that, we've actually stopped being loving. It is a difficult balance of grace and truth. But when you remove the truth, you also remove love. True love is kind and confrontational. It must be both or it is not love. God in his grace confronts us because the things that we're doing that we're hiding are killing us and are undermining the community of the church. Y'all, our goal is to learn to live into God's kingdom. What does that mean? That God has a culture and a kingdom, and by his grace, we're accepted into that kingdom. But grace has two functions. Grace has the function of mercy to cover the believer, but grace also has the function of empowering the believer to live above the sins we struggle with. That is the grace and the mercy of God. That's walking in the light. It's what he's called us to. As I close, I want us to consider what are the places where we're tempted to live out lies? What are the places where we're tempted to present ourselves to God or to others in a way that is just not true? Here's what I'll tell you. Here's what I found. Is when I can be honest with others about my struggle, that's when the healing power of God rushes in. It says in the scripture that when we confess to God, he forgives us. But when we confess to others, he heals us. You know, Luke is not just trying to expose the devil's plans. He's also showing how we overcome the devil's plans. What's the antidote for this deception? Awe and reverence for the holiness of God. 
My last point, number four, we must have awe and reverence for the holiness of God. Acts 5, verse 11, fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Y'all, a proper view of who God is brings us into alignment with his purpose and will. Y'all, this keeps us, remember, Comer's structure, I think it's brilliant. The devil's goal is to deceive us, right, with deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires that then are normalized within our society. This keeps us, a proper view of God, keeps us from normalizing sinful behavior which brings about destruction. Y'all, we all have these issues. I just want to bring some lightness and some grace here. You'll remember repentance is a good word. We learned that last week. Your repentance, when you do it enough, you you find that it it brings you into how God has designed you to bring, and it brings you joy. Yo, we all have these issues, and I'm so thankful that we don't get what we deserve. My good friend, Austin McCaskill, if you ask him how he's doing, he'll say every time, much better than I deserve. I love that, y'all. That is God's grace. Now, here's what happens. The church grows by leaps and bounds after this happens. People are afraid. There's an awe and a reverence that comes over them, but they move forward with power and with conviction. Y'all, let's reflect on this in light of God's holiness. So as we close, are, are there any ideas that you've bought into that are wreaking havoc on your life? Are there any ideas or, or lies that you've started living out that are wreaking havoc on your life and the life of others? And are there any areas where you might need to bring this to confession first to God and then second to others so that this does not become normalized in your life or our lives? Amen. So to go back through it, we have to fight deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires so that they don't become normalized within our society. So I have two questions for you. Is there anything God's speaking to you? Anything that God's been highlighting as we've been going through this? If God's speaking to you, what are you gonna do about it? Amen. Hey guys, Pastor Bronson here. I pray that this message that you just listened to helps you and assists you in your journey with Jesus. And if you want to get connected in our church, follow us on Instagram at NLC Downtown Little Rock.